stands up. He starts grooving a little, and it's just like, oh, yeah. look, you're connecting. You're growing as a person. You're broadening your <laughs> scope of interests. I'm so proud of you. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Shows, the eye catch our anime focused show. Basara, I think this lady likes your song a little too much. Yeah, I mean, that's that's legitimate. I mean, she's way too into it. It's weird. Yeah. This is the, uh, the series of episodes that I will refer to as Boobs and Groupies. Good lord. <laughs> boobs, Groupies, and Die Hard. Boobs, Groupies, and Die Hard. Correct, Diori. Yeah. Thank you for the correction. I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. I'm Iori. And on today's show, we'll discuss Macross 7, episodes 13 to 24, released between January 15th and April 2nd, 1995, written by Tomita Sukehiro and directed by Amino Tetsuro, with story concepts by Kawamori Shoji, who is a coward and needs to eh, just, you know, turn on your location, buddy, I just want to talk, and mechanical designs by the same, along with Miyatake Kazutaka. Oh lord, um... But before we get into why Shoji is a coward, a friendly reminder that we still want to hear from you. So please share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We're still hoping to put together a listener mailbag episode with your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, and more. So please get those thoughts in, especially if you have seen Macro 7, we would love to hear your opinions about the thing. Yeah, if you have seen it, we know you pirated it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god. Oh god. We know you engaged in the exact same process of watching anime that everyone did in the 90s, and we are not judging you. No, no judgment. Yesterday at the group lesson for my music school, where we are all made to perform in turns, I did perform Sweet Fantasy, and no one there was old enough to remember it. Oh no. Whoa. How's it, how's it feel to, to finally be uh, the oldest person? I mean, I've been the oldest person at this school who isn't one of the teachers for as long as I've been there. But this was the most visceral reminder so far. If it makes you feel better, I had a student refer to uh, 90s rock music as classic rock. And uh, my whole soul shriveled up and died that day. Um, yeah. It's not classic rock. Classic rock is like 50s, 60s, 70s. And 80s is the cutoff point. It's no. So stop it. Stop it, radio channels. Classic is supposed to have a historical breakpoint. Like, it shouldn't be dependent on how old you are. It is entirely dependent on how old I am. Sean, you would be so deeply upset by my trampoline classes. Oh, <laughs> I'm actually very intrigued by that revelation, in part because I would have imagined at this point after consuming a great deal of uh, Macross wiki pages in, since our first episode, that Macross is like somewhere in the generational psyche of Japan as an as an anime series, at least musically. Oh, it is. Mm -hmm. But people younger than in me are more likely to know Frontier. Frontier's the big one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Delta. If you're a teenager, you've seen Delta. Mm hmm. Hmm. I mean, it's just like, you know, how many people under the age of 21 have watched Gundam Wing? Probably not as many as, as over 21s have. If you want to make a Western comparison, it's like a younger Star Trek or Doctor Who fan who's watched the series that are contemporary with them, but haven't dug back into the archives to watch the old stuff. Yes, fair. Well, okay, so we got to get to what broadly these... 12 episodes are about and hmm so i think that's pretty simple so what would you say Ori, are like the main through lines for these episodes struggling with the fact that you're starting to get popular and get media attention that you are not remotely prepared for or personally suited to yeah correct consistently disrespecting the expertise of People who actually do know how to fly these planes, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
And women getting mind controlled and whipping out their tits. A uh, creepy dating. Uh, There's that too. We also get to meet by name uh, one of the proto Devlin, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Who apparently just gets visually suggestively horny when she hears Basra's music. Yeah, yeah. We haven't been shown whether this is a proto debut thing or if it's a Shivu thing. We'll come back to it, but. <laughs> That said, like, with Shivu, you can really see the Tenchi Muyo design influence in how her character is drawn. True. Oh, yeah. And I dig it. Yeah. Yeah. Because plot-wise, Tenchi Muyo had shit all going for it. But dang, if they did not have some really striking character designs, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Sure, they certainly did. Yeah. Sevilla is, like, the closest that the series has gotten to this far- where they're like, okay, no one can tell if the proto-devilin are cat boys, or just human, or humans with elf ears, so let's just draw an elf and clarify it for everyone. Well, it's interesting that you say, let's draw an elf, because that's also sort of how the Zentradi are originally designed. Like, when a Zentradi is myclonized, your only visual indicator is the pointed ears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and Emilia has those. There, there are some gr- great shots where you see that. So when we're talking about the proto-devil, and this is pretty important, maybe we'll get this out of the way now, not necessarily the weird, groupy, sexual aspect of it, but specifically that, like, up to this point, all we've been told is that spirit or spiritia... Spiritia. Yeah, is really, really important, right, to this alien group. Yeah. But we've not really understood exactly why they collect it, and, like, turn people into mindless zombies, but we don't quite get it. Now we start to see, like, it has a very clear physical effect on, at least in this case, a proto-devilin, who is driven into almost, I I guess you would say, lusty... There's no almost about it. Okay, let me rephrase. She says the word ecstasy, to clarify. She's driven into, like, obsessive lust for him. Uh, for for his music. You know, I don't think that they've been particularly subtle about it up till now that Spiritia is essentially just like, our antagonists are psychic vampires. In like a very actual sense, not a new age sense. Right. It's just that they want a very specific kind of energy and it's... Animal. The energy that they want to feed on is reactions that humans produce when exposed to music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting, and, the, like, the thing that was keeping me narratively engaged, for the most part, in Macross 7, is, for the first 12 episodes that we saw, there is no real clarification what Spiritia is, or what its relationship to music is, until we actually start witnessing people discover that Firebomber is generating peculiar relationships to spiritia and even then we're like so is music the thing is people is how people respond to music the thing but then how are people responding to the music of course that's the thing because this is macross and that's always been the thing as far as we go back because Mm -hmm. yeah this is even why we have milia here now why she is the mayor yeah because the zentradi did not have culture before they encountered Earth humans. And then, when they found the Earth humans and got into the war, and then heard music for the first time, they were like, oh, oh shit, this actually, this rocks. Yeah. Yeah. We need some of this. Yeah. Okay, maybe murdering all of you would not be a good idea. Maybe we need to actually work this out so that we can keep, you know, grooving on these sweet jams. Yeah. This is still one of the ultimate reasons why I'm actually kind of very upset that I didn't get into Macross very early, because if someone just told me that the theme of the Macross franchise is music has the potential to save the world, I would have been into this ages ago. Yeah. Brandon, I've spent our entire friendship telling you that. (laughs) Yeah, you need to listen. But I could have known when I was a teenager is what I mean. You don't get to lament this when I've been telling you it for several years. I mean, before we met, I mean, like, (laughs) there are other people who are into Macross and it's like, look at the sweet robot. I was like, there's music here. Come on. It's like, this is really cool. 
You know, I do think that before Frontier, that was a huge divide between the Japanese and American fandom, certainly. The American fandom was very much about, hey, yeah, robots, fighter jets. And the Japanese fandom, I mean, still into the fighter jets, but also very much about Minmei. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's get to some of the other aspects of this these 12 episodes. I mean, since we're talking about Minmei anyway. Yeah, please, let's talk Minmei. Shall we jump into that moment in episode 14 where Dr. Chiba just full-on reveals his man cave, straps Gundlin down, forces his eyes open clockwork orange style because kyun kyun, we're gonna learn about Minmei. Yeah, I love Chiba a lot. Kyun kyun. Kyun Kyun! It's time to learn about Minmei. <laughs> <laughs> so I love Kiba a lot. Kiba and Ray Lovelock are perhaps the only male characters in Macro 7 that I actually enjoy. Because there is something uniquely energetic about... What is your problem with Maximilian and Genus? Uh, we'll get to that, I'm sure. Oh. Because I have, <laughs> I have some max feelings in this block of episodes in particular. But suffice it to say, the thing that I am intrigued about the most about Kiba is he seems like very enthused about the revelation that he seems to have come up uh, come about recently that music may have some capacity to allow them to win the war against the proto devlin and he's very excited about not just the idea that he has made that revelation but the revelation itself that music has power and is very eager to share that with everybody and it's just unfortunately comic that the first person he shares that with is the one person who does not like rock music. <laughs> and the thing that's great about this is in subsequent series, we continue building on the science of it. Like, we are basically watching throughout multiple series the process of scientists essentially discovering a new natural law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, essentially. That's actually really cool. Please tell me that Kiba song units still persist as a as a method of recording those. Not once we know more about the science, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah but he's kind of evil. <laughs> I think the thing that's great about him and the thing that makes him come off as way too aggressive is actually because he's a Minmei fan, because he's old enough to remember the war, he's obviously had a theory that there is more to this than just culture there is something fundamental being activated in the brain and now that the proto devrin are appearing as a threat he is finally getting some data that backs up his theories mm -hmm. in his position i would probably also get a little wild <laughs> yeah but you would you clockwork orange somebody it really depends on who i mean if i like if i like this song if I liked this song enough and thought everybody needed to hear it, and I was also up, uh, attempting to educate them on the idea that music has the, uh, the power to literally win a war, I can imagine some people that I strapped her chair to listen to some Kendrick Lamar or some... Wow. You know, like... I, <laughs> wow. Like, I think the reason why I'm attached to Chiba personally is... <laughs> there is a lot about me in Chiba, to be perfectly fair. This person is just hype about music. Oh, okay. It's so weird, Brandon, because, like, he's not just hype about music. He's kind of like a mad scientist who is strapping people to chairs and forcing them to listen to music that hurts them. He's not having fun. Camlin's not sitting there going, gosh, this is the greatest. Let us be absolutely clear. If he didn't pick the one grump in the United Forces uh, who just decided that he doesn't like Firebomber, that scene would have been, like perfectly normal for most other people. They would not have to be strapped to anything. They would be like, oh, Firebomber is neat. So let's continue talking about your research. It's just Gamlin. Also, sorry to jump ahead. It's a grump. No, he's not a grump. This man literally does not know what the fuck fun is. This poor boy. He doesn't know fun. That's true. Well, yes. We later learn he's never been on a carousel before. The fucking carousel is the best thing that's ever happened to him. Like, God, if you're this fucking psyched for the merry-go-round, I cannot wait to get your ass on a Ferris wheel, boy. 
<laughs> oh, Lord. I mean, like, there is another scene where Gamlin meets with Ray and hears the music, and he's trying not to, to kind of be rude. Yeah. But Ray knows immediately, oh, he does not like this music. So I don't think it's just that he doesn't like Basara specifically and the band. I think he just really does not like this music. Yeah. He's not a rock music kind of guy. No, he he's like listening to like like Conway Twitty or something. Like he, that's what he's doing. He's he's got like some old school country on. Oh, whatever no. the Japanese equivalent of that is. He doesn't seem <laughs> like an Anka guy either. I think he listens to like long, mournful Sakamoto Yuichi like symphonic piano pieces. Just very atmospheric. Very possible. That makes sense. I will give Gamlin. A modicum of the benefit of the doubt, even though I am very hostile towards Gamlin on average, that it is kind of clear now, not just that he's not trying to be rude, but that he is genuinely trying to understand what it is about this music that other people enjoy. He just doesn't enjoy it in turn. And he's starting to get there. Like, when he goes to Firebomber's show and Milane is singing Sweet Fantasy, like, you see him start to get it. He, he bounces. He stands up, he starts grooving a little, and it's just like, oh, yeah. look, you're connecting. You're growing as a person, you're broadening your <laughs> scope of interests. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is, like, I think he's been in the military basically forever. So he, he is very rigid. Poor kid. He has not had enough time to develop a personality or interests or... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Really an understanding of most anything, because even, like, his understanding of relationships, he doesn't really understand what love really means or entails. Oh, yeah, this is this is off-screen backstory I, so far, but, like, he's been in military academies basically most of his life. Yeah. Yeah. So he's had a very sheltered upbringing. Yeah, and that affects how he behaves. A specific kind of shelter that makes it difficult for him to, like, develop emotionally in any capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not. Yeah, I mean, the, of the two main male characters in this, both of them are emotionally stunted man babies. But <laughs> at least one of them has a mission that makes sense even if his approach to how he treats that mission and how he treats the people around him is rough and at times somewhat inappropriate uh, and overbearing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unlike a certain other character who explains absolutely nothing to anybody and is a giant dick constantly and who I despise and keep hoping will not dodge a bullet. In fact, the episode where he got really tired and kept getting hit, I was like, man, he's got some plot armor right now because he should be dead. I mean, of course he has plot armor. And I was hopeful. So I'm going to say that I did go down to my hey local and conduct a poll among my friends who were there that night because the central triangle within Seven is framed as... Milane choosing between Basara and Gamlin. So I said to my friends, pick one. Almost unanimously, we have decided that we would rather have Gamlin. Of course! Correct decision. Because, yes, okay, he's kind of plain, he's pretty awkward, but that at the end of the day, when he comes home, that is a man who takes off his motherfucking dirty socks and puts them in the goddamn hamper like a goddamn grown-up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a man who knows how to do chores. You would not murder him within a month of moving in together. Oh, God. And that counts for a lot now that we're this old. I will note that the one person who picked Basara is under 30 and is still, like, in the age range where it's like, yeah, yeah, I'd date a musician. <laughs> Everyone else who answered the question, like, completely irrespective of gender, said, no, nah, no. Nah, Gamlin's the one I could actually stand to share my life with. Like, of the two of them, like, which one bring- No, also, like, if you dated musician, Vefina is right there! Vefina is right there, and so much hotter. Yeah. I mean, there is that too, yeah. Anyway, of the two of these male, quote-unquote, love interests, only one of them would take the time out of his day to do something nice for you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not because he feels guilty because he screwed up, 
but because he actually cares about you. Yeah. And that person is Gamlin, <laughs> not Basra. Basra would only bring you flowers after he's realized how many times he's fucked up by not caring about you. And even then, he would get the cheapest, crappiest flowers he could find. Basra would not buy you flowers. Basra would go, why are you mad? Ray would buy the flowers, give them to Basra, give him like detailed point by point instructions on how to apologize. Correct. And Basara would still fuck it up. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. He would still fuck it up. Gamlin would fuck up a lot too because he's rough around the edges and he's awkward. But he's trying. But like you could understand the sincerity. He's trying. Yeah. Like you would go, okay, I get it. You didn't mean to like accidentally say something offensive. I get it. But you you yeah. So I hate Basara with a fiery passion. Now granted, like <laughs> I just don't like him. I am only looking at this through the framework of this obligatory Macross triangle. But if I was allowed to widen my scope, let's say, mm. well, then I think Milane and her six older sisters better be ready to meet their new step-parent because Milane's mom has got it going on. Okay, well, let's get back to talking about why we hate Basra. Mmm, yes. So... I don't hate him. I would hate him if we had to share space. <laughs> like, if I lived with him, I'd hate him. But from the perspective of looking at other sci-fi of the era and anime in general, especially anime made for adults as opposed to explicitly children's anime like Precure, Basara walked so that, like, I don't know, fucking Luffy from One Piece could run. <laughs> because at this point in time, there just isn't as much media aimed towards adults where the solution to a problem is befriend it instead of shoot it. And something that made Basara really revolutionary as the protagonist of sci-fi was that... <clears throat> okay, so a lot of early sci-fi anime have a basic premise that the enemy is A, not human, B, not people. And if we're lucky, we'll get this really late stage reveal that the enemy is, like, a thinking and feeling species of creatures. But Basara's approach to engaging with the enemy is fundamentally premised on even if they are not human, they are people, and therefore they are worth attempting to connect with. And that is just not a mindset that was common at the time. Yeah. I would go so far as to say it's still not a particularly common mindset within a lot of sci-fi particularly military sci-fi, which Macross can technically be classified as. I wouldn't even say it's a common common trait in any any media of any kind. Yeah, because we still don't write male characters like him. Right. His approach to, I want to solve this problem by connecting and by sharing our feelings, as opposed to by fighting, is much more typical of, say, a magical girl show. And to get this in 1995, and then to actually grow up and meet a whole bunch of, like, actual adult males who watched Macross 7 as kids and were like, no, Basara rocks, I want to be able to be like that. Yeah. Has really informed a less toxic approach to how to engage with others, at least in the particular subset of nerd culture that I spend my IRL time in. So the existence of Basara as a protagonist has had tangible benefits on how I have been able to engage with my community. And that alone makes him worthwhile to me. So my relationship to Basara is kind of complicated by the fact that there are parts of that that I actually like very much accept. Like, I see... A lot of, for instance, um, Kisaragi Gentaro from Kamen Rider Fuze in Basara. Uh, someone who is, like, very committed to the idea that even if someone has already proven that they declared themselves my enemy, it is my duty to reach out to them. Not, to, not because I cannot fight, but because there are better solutions than fighting. The part that sticks in my craw about Basara is just that the only tool that he believes he has in his toolbox for that is music. And as a result, is bad at any other engagement in ways yeah. that become frustrating. 
This is fair. He doesn't express his own feelings in any other way than music. He balks at the idea that other people may have feelings that clash with his desire to play music whenever he wants to. He refuses to clarify any of his intents to other people, which is bad on its own and worse when we realize, in hindsight, that over 20 episodes well, several characters have not been talking to each other very well, actually, and the only person who is, is Meline, the youngest person in the room. But there is still something remarkably admirable about the idea that Basara believes that even if my enemy refuses to engage with me. It is my duty to constantly engage with them, and this is the only tool that I'm going to use to do it, even if I am risking my own life. And I do think that that's kind of rad. Yeah, in episode 16, there is this moment when Milane says, why are you playing music for them? They're the enemy. And he goes, we're playing for them because they're the enemy. Because... I got up out of my chair when that happened. That was, that's Kisaragi Gantaro energy. I love that. Yes. I like the statement. I wish the rest of the series spent more time developing that in how he behaves. Because the the, the big thing that, that I kind of get frustrated with Basra is, is there's two things. One is like that he just doesn't explain himself, which is the thing you were kind of talking about, Brandon. Like he doesn't communicate with anybody about his intentions except supposedly he's communicated with ray but that's off screen we never really see that uh and that's really frustrating and we have to take ray's word for it we have to take ray's word for like that there is a reason and that it's a totally legitimate reason but whatever fine but, but the other issue i have is that to me basar reminds me of that guy in your creative writing <laughs> class who thinks they're the greatest creative writer and doesn't take any criticism whatsoever of anything they do but loves to dole it out to everybody else mm -hmm. uh that is who basar reminds me of you know he's got he's got his you know his cd with like 27 books in his epic series that he's written and he thinks it's the greatest thing ever but also doesn't want to listen to anybody about like how you might approach these things and when that for me when that gets frustrating is that there are those moments when the series is like hey the music thing is more than just he's just trying to get attention but then there are other moments when he just behaves like what he's trying to get is just attention. When he's like in space just going, what are you doing? Listen to my song. Listen to my song. And that to me doesn't come across as, hey, I want us to be friends. And like, let's let's like listen because I want you to get to the same emotional level where we can stop killing each other. It reads as a guy who wants his his like minute. He wants <laughs> his minute of attention. Very pleased by my mixtape. <laughs> Yeah, and that gets even worse when he starts to behave, especially in this grouping of, of episodes, in incredibly pretentious ways. When they get a gig, Ray makes a gig uh, at an old folks facility, retirement facility, right? His initial reaction is not, oh, I didn't realize that folks who are like, you know, from this elder generation would be into my music. That's cool because they're into my music and that's like the whole thing, right? Is I want to make friends. He's like, oh, it's a bunch of old people listening to my music. Ew. And he does the same thing again when it's the young people. When he gets on stage, then he actually does reach for them. And that is a really spectacular moment. It's good. I just wish... Because like, yeah, they're all grooving. He's like, yeah, I want you to enjoy this no matter who you are. Mm -hmm. I wish he that message was just consistent. That that's... That is Basara's identity. Like, yes, he's awkward socially. He sometimes behaves in ways that are a little bit off-putting to others. But when it comes to, like, reaching out to people with music, it's universal. He, he doesn't care who you are. You could, you could be a freaking pigeon in, in the park. But if the pigeon's into it, like, he's, oh, he's there. He's going to jam and give you the, I mean, he could play other songs than the one fucking song all the time. But still. So I read that episode differently. Um, mind you, I still think that it was incredibly pretentious of uh, Basara in, in those two moments. But I believe the, the sticking point for Basara is the music that we're making is the thing that is ultimately important. And I don't feel comfortable playing in places where I feel like that's not important. And I feel like in the first moment with in the elderly home, his issue was everybody cares more about Lin Minmei 
and the fact that their connection- Millane had been in the movie, yeah. Yeah, and as a result, they don't care about the music, and was frustrated by the fact that the person who invited them had very little to say about the music. But it was very, very cute when all the uh, old men wanted to take checkies with Millane. That was adorable. Yeah. That was cute. They deserved that. That was actually really cool. And later with the children, he was not only upset by the fact that he thinks that the only reason children want to see Firebomber is because they want to see the cool robot, but that the person who invited them has nothing to say about their music and actually gets the name of their songs wrong and learns as a result that... Ultimately, if you want your music to be important, then I guess you have to play it for people anyway and hope that they get it, and they are getting it because your music is good. And I think that that was an important lesson for him to learn, uh, while still being important for us to realize exactly what his ideals are. He values the music more than everything else that everybody else cares about. It's why he doesn't care about the fact that people consider him the hero of City 7, because to him, he's not saving the city from the proto-devlin. He's trying to reach out to them and failing so far, in his own estimation. And I think that that's really kind of neat. To be fair, it's kind of his own fault. But I do think that something he is struggling with is a problem that a lot of creatives have, where it's like, I want to be judged on my work and everything else. Please just ignore everything else. Do not look at my disaster yeah. of my life. Do not ask me to perform interviews and shit. Like, yeah. here is my work. Sometimes I don't want to be radical. Sometimes I just want to get five stars. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just like, here is my work. Please enjoy my work. Leave me the hell alone. And you know what? I fucking sympathize. I, I, I do sympathize with that. I do think that it would be helped if... It's nice that we do get a new song in, in this grouping of episodes. Holy lonely light! But uh, the thing that Basra, like, I find really weird is that nobody tells him, hey, bro, like, we have other songs. Maybe try a different one with the proto-devlin. Like, you keep playing the same song and they're not into it. Like, every single time they like, oh, why is this, this asshole singing at us this weird song? And then they leave. And he's like, why aren't you listening to my song? Try a different song. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of frustrating that he, it, it. I mean, it kind of works. I guess I think the sad thing is that the series has started justifying his tactic. But at this point, we have not seen him use Seventh Moon in concert or in battle, have we? Nope. No, it's primarily the the one song that the title. Yeah, it's mostly Planet Dance and Planet. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, he's only. I wish they would use Totsugeki Love Heart a little more because yeah. that is a fucking banger. I I just feel like as a musician, it's like, well, he cares about the music, and it's like, well, as a musician, like you should be creating more stuff. Like you can't. You can't be like, it's like an author who wrote one book and it's now 40 years later and you're still talking about the same book. It's like, okay, so like, where did you write anything else? Write something else, bro. Like, what are you doing? So the weird part for me is the show actually, to me, goes to unnecessary lengths to qualify for us that Basara is consistently writing music because we do on several occasions see the process of him writing a thing. Yeah. yeah. I very much enjoyed the sections where we watch him working out the song that becomes Remember 16. Yeah. That's great. I, I really like that. I think that that's neat. Watching him in process probably gave him a lot more depth than the show has bothered to up until now. True. Like, hmm. I am definitely in kind of a weird place because I know much more about his backstory than either of you have been shown, which is why I am giving him a lot more grace for his complete inability to deal with people. Mm-hmm. This is the part where we learn, like, 20 episodes later that he's literally been raised in a barn. Yeah. My problem with Basara at that point, musically, is there are songs that he has just written that he has only performed in battle the once. If any. He just wrote Remember 16, which I think is a banger. And I think I've only heard him perform it after having written it twice. Mm -hmm. That's, this song rocks. Maybe, maybe the proto-devlin need to hear this one. Yeah. Try a different tune, bro. Uh, Holy Lonely Night is actually a banger. 
And I actually really dug the scene where he performs it for Civil. But where is he get work performed this ever? Yeah, but honestly, the duet version is better. Oh, the God. problem is that the duet version's better. We've only heard the solo so far. I mean, it, it's sort of one of those things of like, he's banging his, his head against the door and the door's not opening. It's like, well, maybe you should try the handle. He just keeps doing the same thing over and over. And while eventually it's starting to work, which I think is really unfortunate that the series is going to to give him exactly what he wants benefits from having done the exact same thing over and over why is nobody telling him like that maybe he needs to switch a tactic or try it a little differently this time he's he's so certain he's figured it all out but like how could he possibly have figured it all out this is all new territory he's nobody's ever done this no one's dealt with psychic music vampires like this is all new material so the, the logical thing would be to say, okay, well, I'm going to switch. I'm going to try different things. Like maybe I'll do it upside down this time. Or uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll hug the, the, the main guy and like, we'll, we'll like get really close and I'll sing into his face or uh, I'll send him a mixtape. He hasn't <laughs> used <laughs> Submarine Street in battle yet, has he? No, I don't think God so. God damn it. That, that's yeah. like another one of the very good ones. I'm trying to remember if he's written it yet. Yeah, I mean the tunes are are solid in this. It's it's just I don't want to hear Planet Dance again. I'm <laughs> fucking tired of that song. So on the one hand, I can see how a band can be fooled into thinking because I mostly hear that song live. I have never gotten tired of that song and probably never will. <laughs> I am haunted by by the melody of that goddamn song. It's just literally when uh, the second I because uh, I hadn't watched you know since since we did the last recording and so i i turned one of the episodes on and that song came on and the rest of the the day i was just going saturday night like constantly and i was like stop it that's the thing right i can see how a band can be fooled into thinking no but that's the point it gets the bar hopping yeah i can see how a band could be fooled into thinking no this is the thing that is going to work because it's working for everybody else no but it's it's not it's not a positive earworm for me it's it's what's the appropriate american comparison this is their welcome to the jungle or something no this just no this is like this is like still singing the macarena like 30 years later for me like that's what this feels like wow i i don't hate the song as on its own terms i just i need i need a break (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah Let's give us the encore of Remember 16 instead, please. Yeah, let's let's switch them up. Let's move the, the songs around. Let's do some other ones. Like, I don't know, maybe maybe he sings Iron Man or something. Like, you know, put some Black Sabbath up or like, I don't know, like he just, he sings like Chinese opera because he's bored. Like, you just do something different. No. Or Japanese opera. I don't know. What is Japanese opera? No and Kabuki? Yeah, do that Shogun? one. Yeah, do that. No, I... Yeah, he should do that. I love Hukuyama Yoshiki with all my heart. I don't think I want to hear him try to do, like, kabuki-style performance. I mean, okay, fair enough. But, like, just, you get my point. Anyway, so... So I think we need to talk about Die Hard now. Oh, God. Let's talk about Die Hard. Yeah, yeah. In episode 19, Milia is taken hostage by Zentradi terrorists who are heavily implied to be under proto-devil mind control. And it is implied that there are some conflicting alien biology issues which make the Zentradi specifically more vulnerable to manipulation by the proto-devilin. But the great thing about it was, you know, building cordoned off, police outside doing nothing, and gambling... Grabbing a gun and why did the trace come in the same kind of magazine that you put in a fucking Kalashnikov? I don't fucking know, but I, I'm willing to roll with it. Yeah, rule of cool. I also very much enjoy that no one in this series is capable of internalizing the lesson that if you tell Milane to sit and wait, she fucking won't. Like, <laughs> you would think by now. Surely to God, someone would have learned. But they never do. No. And honestly, he deserved it in this instance. 
Because he was like, no, no, stay here. Make me a cup of coffee. <laughs> Which, fuck you, bro. How so, dare you? <laughs> honestly, when she went into the building full of terrorists behind him and then plays it off as, <laughs> I forgot to ask if you wanted milk or sugar in that. You go, girl. Good job. Yeah, good on her. At this point, I'm confident that if somebody had just handed Melina a gun, she'd have been like, yeah, it's my mother. Of course I'm going to save her. My notes say, give her a gun. <laughs> in all caps. But the other thing is, well, no, here's the thing. Her mother is Zentradi. Her, both her parents are ace fighter pilots. They had the first interspecies marriage in the galaxy. Every single one of their seven children should have been taught, like, three types of self-defense. Because you cannot convince me that some weird, like, eugenicist, race-purist bullshit idiot conspiracy did not attempt to assassinate those children at least once. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it also doesn't make sense that they would not have been exposed to these things to some degree, given that... Given the political prominence of her parents, yes. Yeah. 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 So just it it seems and well, and of course the 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 show bears that out because uh Maline does actually uh fly fly one of the uh the Batroids mm-hmm. at one point and is relatively good at it. I mean, yeah. she's clearly rusty and rough around the edges. She needs training, but she's clearly got the skills. She can do it mm-hmm. more so than other people who are older than her. Almost anyone else we've seen. Yeah, she is. Uh, is it Rex that flies it as well? I don't think Rex actually gets in, but she is better than any other civilian pilot we have seen so far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to clarify, however, Rex did get in, get like a couple of feet in the air and then get shot and then come back down and go, maybe this is not for me. That's right. I'm done. Yeah, she she not that good at it. And then Malene jumps in and is just like, I got it and does remarkably well. Yeah, and Rex just goes, you got it. The old folks in the giant tank Batroid, however, uh, apparently cut the top off of a skyscraper. So and those were I, I like how just casually this happens. And all they get is a little scolding from the mayor, but nobody talks about whether or not there were people in that building. <laughs> yeah. At this point, a lot of colla- a lot of building damage has taken place in City Seven, and no one ever qualifies whether anyone had to live in any of those. Yeah, are people dead? Or like, yeah. Or maybe they just were. They were out. This is a fleet of spaceships. Uh, you're under some pretty tight resource management. What are we doing about this, y'all? <laughs> like, team? That is an interesting thing, because it, it doesn't really address the, the research component. What's our repair budget? Where are we getting our repair materials? Yeah, that is a great question. Where is the re- repair material? They must have... It just must be, like, in the hold on City 7. It must be where they keep a lot of it. But that's got a limit. They just have a bunker with large planks of steel. <laughs> Yeah, that's just that's just like a huge warehouse. Like this is our steel supply, but that's gonna run out too. Like at some point, you just you're just not gonna have enough. So, I mean, the Macross City fleets are just like a hopefully less do- doomed version of the Mega Road in a lot of ways, because as immigration fleets like. We're going out here and we're going to sail until hopefully we hit a habitable planet. And I sure hope we don't all starve to death before then. Like, it is a profound act of faith and also a profound act of... Is there no way we can plan this better? (laughs) I mean, in a lot of ways, Macro 7 reminds me of, like, Battlestar Galactica. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Because while the context of why they're out there is a little bit different, they're being beset upon by this fleet of aliens, basically, and having to deal with that. But it, it is interesting that the focus of this series, like, it's not interested on, like, the actual logistics of any of this. Like, the closest we get is in this sequence of episodes, I think, so far, where we actually deal with the issue of how the fold drive actually mm-hmm. works and its limitations and what what trying to find because uh, when we left off right the the city seven had been taken it had been it had been transported uh, by a fold drive by the by the uh, proto devlin and so when they're looking for it like we have to deal with the logistics of that but for the most part the series doesn't deal with like the lo- any of the logistics of how any of this works because its interest is in the, the like culture and the people mm-hmm. living. And 
and being in this space, uh, you know, obviously with Basara and and Melaine and Ray as being the primaries, and then we do get the military side with Gamlin. But even for him, the only time we get the military side is when there's a battle. We don't really get a lot of the military side in terms of like training or resource management or any of that, because other it's either we get to see him in battle or we get to see him awkwardly going on dates with Melaine. That's basically kind of what we get. No, sometimes we also see him being bullied by his bosses, the two most important people in this fleet. True. To go on dates with their daughter. That's correct. Yeah, 14, 19, very skeevy, but at the same time, he is under so much pressure from his literal ass bosses that I can't help but feel sorry for him about it. (laughs) And he's clearly trying to handle it with as much tact as possible, given the circumstances. I that I will say I, I think we'd mentioned that in the last episode and in in these episodes it does it even more so than because in the last episode we had the the creepy butt shot mm-hmm. and there is a butt shot in this one but it's less creepy but it does seem like Gamlin is trying to be incredibly respectful of the really un, like difficult nature of this situation mm-hmm. like he's he's not a kid she is mm-hmm. and. While there's supposed to be a romance there, like, there isn't any kissing that's happening yeah. between them. Like, there's not a lot of physical contact. They don't really hold hands. I think the only time they've had physical contact is when, and he is, like, trying to pull her out of the path of a bullet or something, and that's basically it. Right, it's sort of like like a very specific, con- it's not romantic touching. It's Chivalric it's almost. A, yeah, yeah, more like that. Um, but I do think it's interesting because in these sequence of epi- episodes... In particular, the issue of sex has come up uh, because the implication is that that Basara has slept with Rex because she stayed overnight. Uh, it turns out that that's not true. We learned from Ray that, in fact, that the three of them were practicing music, uh, I guess, which uh, cool, cool story. But they they have the like awkward moment where she's trying to figure out what does it mean when a guy stays overnight? And oh, well, that means like, that means the guys you you know you know like do the alphabet backwards like come on, and it's sort of a awkward way for the series to to raise the the issue of sex, uh, but it does it in an I think a sufficiently awkward way that I think we're supposed to be like it's she's she's 14 like we're supposed to be uncomfortable with like the, mm-hmm. the way this has come up i mean it's that but it's also like oh my god i'm getting the talk from my mom's bodyguard yes <laughs> yes the like, hilarious that bodyguard the part that was weird for me like your boss's daughter asks you a sex question you just tell her you cannot answer it and the other thing is like the whole for me, the fridge horror of that scene was she doesn't know that that's the last guy she should ever ask a sex question to because he was checking out her ass with his binoculars how many episodes ago? Oh my god. Not that long ago. <laughs> like eight episodes ago, he was he was checking out her butt, which is creepy. He got less creepy in this grouping of episodes, but <sighs> to be fair, it's because he's not in it as much. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Although I did love that moment when he tries to protect Melia and she's just it's like, no, no, it doesn't matter how thick your body is. At this range, the bullet will still go through you and hit me. So just fucking stand aside. I love that. Yeah. I mean, she's also a badass, so. <laughs> she has always been a badass. Honestly, just one of the gems of this franchise. But, like, we must admit that she did get remarkably... She did establish herself as remarkably more hardcore in these episodes. Because we see her pilot a batch, right? And it's like, oh, cool, you know how to do this thing. And you're very eager to do it because no one else will do it for you. It's the thing she was famous for. Yeah. So much of her importance before she became mayor of City 7 was that she is a fantastic pilot and... I really appreciate that this series was willing to remember that and essentially let her remind everyone, hey, there's a reason you respect me and it's not the massive desk I sit behind. Yeah. The thing that I thought was particularly interesting about that is in a lot of like other people's reaction to that seemed less that uh, they thought that Milia couldn't and more that we can't afford to lose our mayor in battle, so this should not be your responsibility. And Milia's still going, 
but literally no one else is here. Oh, you think you're going to lose me? <laughs> yeah. I'm the best. I'm the best pilot in the room. Battle Seven is not here. I'm gonna get in the robots. <laughs> also, and she does. I'm going to say it. I'm going to start the thing that might actually get some angry comments in their inbox. Even if Battle Seven had been there, she would still have been the best pilot in the room. Yeah, this is true. Oh, wow, okay. Also, as an aside, because I still know how I still don't know how to read this, and that this scene can either be read as Basara being totally oblivious, or Basara being the only person who can read this room, no matter how awkward this scene is. But there is a scene in one of the later episodes where um, Milia gets out of her Batroid to apprehend uh, a, a proto-devlin who had just come out of his destroyed robot, and she gets shot in the leg. And Basara walks up to her while she is still injured. They have an entire conversation about whether this proto-devlin will be apprehended. And while she's still bleeding, Basara walks away. <laughs> yeah. That's Basara just being, like, not not knowing how to deal with any situation. No, but he also called her Granny. Yeah. Yeah. And she was much more pissed about that than she was about being shot. So clearly, she's going to be okay. She's not even that old. Yeah, a part of me is like, Basra knows that she can deal with this wound on her own. He's not gonna be helpful here, so he's just gonna go. I don't know. Like, I feel like in that situation, you're like, hey, okay, like... At least ask. I'm gonna help you, like, can I help you, you know, your leg's injured, can I help you walk so we can get you to get medical care? You know, like, you just do that, like, and if she's like, nah, I got it, then you're like, cool, fine, bye. In fairness, the wiki says that she is 51 years old when Seven takes place. She doesn't look 51 years old. (laughs) Well, I I imagine that's what she's upset about. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, 51's like, you could be a grandma at 51, but like, most people aren't. Oh, I believe she is a grandma at that point. Oh, then what's she complaining about then? (laughs) Wow, Sean. (laughs) Hang on, which of the kids have had children by then? Ooh, actually, wait, maybe... No, no, at this point in the... The timeline, Miranda hasn't had her daughter yet. Miranda is the the daughter who comes immediately before Melaine. Aha. And the only confirmed granddaughter in this continuity so far is Miranda's daughter, Mirage, who is one of the main characters of Macross Delta. Got it. Okay. Nice. Well, so we're, we're winding down towards closing out here. Um... And we didn't get to any of we didn't get to discussing the best worst part of these blocks of episodes, which is Civil being overwhelmingly excited by music. Yes, and exposing uh her her breasts. Not hers. Not her breasts. Not not hers. Other people's. That's worse. Rex's. That was Rex's breasts, which. Like, those were Rex's breasts that she was borrowing, which kind of makes it a lot worse. <laughs> It, oh, it's a lot worse. It's 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 increasingly off more worse. And and Basra in those situations still not quite understanding what's happening at that moment. Which oh. yeah, it takes it takes a certain kind of obliviousness. He's very much also in his hyper focus mode where it's just like, no, sorry, don't bother me yet. Can't you see I'm working on a thing? Stop putting them in my face. It takes a certain kind of obliviousness to stand out of your apartment building in the middle of the night, watch a woman descend to you from the moonlight. Oh god, yeah, that was one heck of a kiss. <laughs> and as you start singing, and as you start performing for her, she's like, obviously very excited. And you can see exactly what kind of excitement that is as you are playing. <laughs> and then she kisses you. And the kiss is enough to leave you winded, and then go... No! Yeah, I have no idea what this means. No, let's be accurate. The kiss produced an explosion that burned a significant portion of his clothing away. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah. And a significant portion of hers as well, which is a lot. This show is doing a lot about Civil. A lot of my feelings about every time Civil appears in an episode is... Please don't do so much. Oh, you're doing so much. Ah, cool. Fine. Um, I mean, Sybil's really an interesting character because she's she's uh, 
raised from slumber, I guess, by, is it Gijil? Gipelnich, isn't it? No, Gipelnich didn't. Uh, it was Gigil who woke her up. It's one of the, like, weird commander guys with the weird oh, eye. Oh, yeah, Gigil. Yeah. Gigi, uh, yeah, that guy. And he raises her by... Oh, yeah, he breaks her up in Verolta. Yeah, by by gathering an, a, a very large supply of spirit jet and then, like, farting it in her direction, basically. And, and then she wakes up, and she's like, ah, like, I'm kind of weird vampire lady, and then she goes out. And what is really interesting about her character is that, like, she seems completely uncontrolled by the proto-Devlin, like, hierarchy. She just goes to City 7, and once she kind of, like, figures out there's some weird stuff going on with the music, because her first encounter with the music, like, she just wrecks the entire fleet. Mm-hmm. And then and then is like, oh, here's him singing the song, and she's like, what's going on to my body? I don't get it. She runs away, and then eventually comes back, and she's just, like, hanging out there, and at one point tells Gigil, uh, like, go, get Get, get out of here. Go away. I don't want you here. Leave me leave me alone. I'm, I'm trying to figure out this odd sensation that my body's having. It's very interesting because so far our interactions with the proto-Devlin have not had a character whose reactions have been almost supernatural in the way that they're constructed. The reactions we've had to the music has been mostly like, why is this asshole singing this song to us? Stop it. And her reaction is, like, lust. Uh, she's losing control of herself. She's becoming obsessive. She's having emotions and feelings she's apparently never felt before. And she doesn't know how to process those. Which I find fascinating because as as humans, for the most part, I suspect all of us in here have some idea of, of like, we've, we've learned how to process some of our emotions. And it's odd to put yourself in that position to think about what would happen if you were experiencing an emotion you've never experienced, but as a fully grown adult. Mm -hmm. Like, I've experienced fear, I've experienced love, I've experienced joy, sadness, depression, like, all those things. What would a new emotion be like, and how would I react to being exposed to that feeling without ever having any way of knowing what that feeling's like? It's. I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Even, even, I mean, I could do without, like, it being super lusty, which is, eh, whatever, but, like... It was the 90s, I mean... It's the 90s, yeah, like... Is that an excuse? Kinda. (laughs) It was kind of the zeitgeist for... If a sci-fi was not super, super serious, it was kind of just doomed to be horny. (laughs) Yeah. Kinda. There's a lot of that. I'm not even anti-horny. It's like, in another context, I'd be like, yeah, this is actually kind of neat. It's just... So, the series is asking very interesting questions about Spiritual that are part of my draw to the series. Because the thing that is particularly engaging to me is, how have uh the Proto-Devlin been engaging with Spiritia before if for 20 episodes now the way that they speak about it as if it is a commodity. Mm-hmm. And the thing that we're It is a resource that they need to harvest, but what else have they been harvesting it from? I mean... Yeah. And why haven't they learned that it is a thing that they can naturally generate if we're learning that music is the source of its generation? Yeah. The thing is, as the subsequent series flesh out the world building, I have a lot of theories on how exactly the Proto-Devun would be able to harvest Spiritia from other species in ways that might not actually specifically involve what is recognized as music by humans. Mm. But that will drag us into some later series spoilers. (laughs) Well, we gotta save that then, yeah. Yeah, because I'm very much looking forward to discovering that. And also the hard science. (laughs) I don't think we're going to cover it in seven, I mean, oh. you won't understand my particular theories about how this works until you have seen at least Frontier. <laughs> Got it. Oh, <laughs> I guess we have to do more macros then. Oh, what a shame! <laughs> oh no, poor things. So, like, the thing that I think I find particularly interesting about discovering civil in this context is... um. Seville may very well be the first proto-devlin that we've seen on screen who is like, oh, I am getting Spiritia right now. I'm not just watching other people generate Spiritia. I'm, this is, 
this is mine. I'm having it. And as a result, I'm very curious that does that mean that we could just give that to everybody else? Why don't they already get it? Why don't they already want it? And I'm very curious to learn as a result whether everyone else's engagement with music is somehow stunted, or if they're just locking them off, locking themselves off from that experience because they're already considering this as a, a hostile military mission rather than being willing to consider the possibility that they can just get Spiritia for free if they open themselves up to this moment. Those things are interesting to me. I just feel like in context, you didn't have to be super horny to give me that. But horny energy is like the superior energy source. Civil is naked, half naked, or in another body that's half naked, half of the time that we see her. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, taking other people's bodies, not cool. Uh, very unacceptable, but... In fairness, I think that... If I had a figure like that, I would also want to dress that way. Oh, well, I mean... Fair. Civil can dress however Civil would like to dress, just don't use other people's bodies. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of inappropriate. But Brandon, I just want you to know that that uh, in the Macross universe, uh, horny energy is is one of the, the most important fo- uh, sources of energy in the entire universe. Uh, in fact... You know that the episode where they almost fall into the red giant? That red giant fueled entirely by horny energy. Ah, yeah. nice. If this we ever canon, get around to way. watching Delta, we're going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, did they really get into the horny energy in Delta? Good lord. Not horny energy as an energy source, but like exploiting the horniness of an opposing military to gain funding for your own civilian mercenary operations <laughs> oh that sounds interesting okay <laughs> okay yeah. also fun fact about Shivil. would anyone like to take a guess which other female character in this series she ch- shares a voice actress with Melane? Milio? no Rex nope here's a hint Sean look behind Brandon wait oh it's the girl with the flowers Who's constantly trying to meet the band and never can? Uh huh. Wow. Okay. That poor girl. Oh, also, now I have a lot of feelings about this voice actress because it means that she plays one character who barely speaks and another character who only knows four words. I will say, I love Flower Girl a lot, but I lost a little bit of respect for her upon learning that she just carries her boombox around and doesn't use headphones. Oh, yeah, though that's un- unacceptable. You don't play your music in public. Yeah, that was... I have one specific feeling about Flower Girl, which is, at this point, the only person who has met her more than once and has actually engaged in conversation with her uh, is uh, Gamlin. And... I just want Gamlin to go, do you want to meet the band? I know people in the... Can, I can make sure you do the thing. Yeah. Would be nice. Would be nice. Also, uh, we don't have time to talk about because we need to close out, but we did not mention, and maybe we'll come back to it later in the series, but the fact that that captured enemy pilot turns out to be human... Dun, dun, dun! ...and is brought back to his humanness by Planet Dance. And it is, in fact, her boombox... Flower Girl's boombox that does the work, which I mm-hmm. thought was very interesting. Uh, I, I hope that the the series will address it in more uh, later on. That we'll get to see more of that. But oh, music as the agent of unbrainwashing will be an overarching theme of this entire franchise. Like from now until God knows when, we're probably this franchise will outlive me. I hope it outlives me. <laughs> it it probably will. It should. It deserves to. I'm particularly excited to learn more about the context of how this anti-brainwashing works in this series, because the show has been very slow to, like, give deliberate information to the characters that would do anything with it. So I highly suspect that later on, they will still have more things to tell Firebomber about what their music's capacity for healing Mm -hmm. the proto-devlin effects on humans will be. Because right now, they don't know a lot other than the music is good and it woke this person up. Yeah. Chiba is very engaged in answering those questions and I'm very excited to see more of Chiba, so... Well, let's see. The other thing, though, is that this series takes place in 2045. 
So we are at the point in the continuity where on an in-universe level, we don't know much about the science of how all this is working. But I think also on like a behind-the-scenes development level, they have not figured that out for themselves yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just because you know what the theme of your story is doesn't mean that you know how the rules of your story work. Uh-huh. True. So, like, there are certain questions that the two of you are bringing up about the science that I am only in a position to answer because I watched Frontier and Delta. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and even then it won't be full answers because there is still so much we don't know about how this particular branch of science works. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited by this. That's cool, though. It means it leaves mysteries to be discovered later. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the evolving world building is one of the huge charm points for me when it comes to Macross. It feels like real history mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah. Well, okay. We got to close out. We got to stop because we can keep going. Um, we will come back for the next 12 episodes of this um, in the future. So do keep an eye out for that. We're doing the entirety of Macross 7 in chunks. So uh, if you'd like to let us know what you thought about this episode, please head over to skiffingfanny.com slash listener suggestions. If you've seen this show and you have opinions about Basra and you want to agree with me, please send a message. Tell us your favorite Fire Bomber song. That too. We want to know yes. that. Uh, follow us at skiffingfanny on Twitter. And do find the Skiffing Fanny show on Facebook as well. And we're on Instagram at Skiffing Fanny. You can get the newsletter, skiffingfanny.com slash newsletter. And if you like what we do, please, patreon.com slash skiffingfanny and give us some love there. Money helps. Uh, and give five-star ratings and tell your friends about the show. And just help us. Just help, please. I'm old. I'm 38. Anyway, you can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, SeanDuke.net, Alphabet Streams on Twitch, and Patreon.com slash TheJoyFactory. You can find me, Brandon O'Brien, at The Rising Tithes on Twitter, Patreon.com slash The Rising Tithes, on Twitch at Twitch.tv slash The Rising Tithes, and on SpeculateSF.com, where I currently GM Fractal Spire, a Girl by Moonlight actual play. You can find me at Yori Kusano on Twitter, kusanoyori.com, and also playing in Fractal Spire at speculatesf.com. And there are no L's in Iori's name. Yes, please. Wanted to make sure that that's out there. As is required, I'm going to make this super awkward, and I apologize to everybody for this, oh, but God. this episode gave me inspiration for something I'm going to wear from now on, especially uh, when we have a live episode, uh, because I also want to get a shirt that when I zip, unzip the front... A biker jacket unzipped to the navel? Yeah, I want a jacket that does that so I can sp- expose myself uh, appropriately in rock star form. Uh, all right. Sorry. That, mm, that is an image nobody wanted, but you're welcome. You're entitled to that feeling, I guess. Thank you for sharing it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. And on that note, awkward ending and scene. And remember, this is a free podcast, not for sale, rent, or auction. Good job, team. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>